sharing and sacrament and in His Word. And um, My name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we are going through a series in the book of Revelation. And uh, I know I say this probably at the start of most of the sermons on Revelation, but I just want to make sure our guests understand why we're doing this. Um, and if you're a guest with us, we're glad you're here. We pray that you're blessed by your time and that most of all, you not only meet some good friends, but uh, encounter the goodness of God. We are a church that uh, lives under the Word of God. We believe the Word of God is what it says it is, the, the Word of God, the very Word of God. And, uh, and it gives us what we need for the essentials of life. It's true and faithful. And it behooves a, a believer and a church to, uh, to dig into the Word and to let it have its way in every way. And so in the course of seeking to do that as a church, we go through the books of the Bible. Probably two-thirds of our messages are right from books, just walking through books. And we try to go through all the books in the Bible. Well, one book that we've neglected for some time, um, for 16 years or so, is the book of Revelation. And there it is at the end of the Bible, 22 chapters, big book of the Bible. So uh, just I, as the lead pastor here for, for those 16 years, have thought, well, probably we need to address this book at some point. And so with fear and trepidation, we've started our series, and I trust going through it um, and benefiting from it because Revelation is meant to be a blessing. It's not meant to be some peculiar you know, book that you look at and the charts come out and you get really weird in your Christianity when you do that. No, it's to be something that really serves us uh, in what really the core what it means to be a believer. And so that's what we've been, I trust, experiencing and learning. So we're making our way through it, and this morning we're going to be in chapters 15 through 16, and, uh, and we're going to talk uh, on a subject that's challenging one, the, the holy wrath of God. Um, but let me just start with a story that I think might set the stage. In June 29th, 2014, a splinter group of Al-Qaeda in Iraq declared itself a worldwide caliphate. That's a one world government of Islamic faith and law. They believed that this, this new government that they were forming would usher in a final eternal Islamic kingdom under God. That's what was behind this declaration. So this group declared itself as this one world government of Islamic faith and law. And you know that group by its name, uh, common here, ISIS. And you know what went on with that, both before 2014 and following. They steamrolled over most of northern Iraq and Syria, conquering city after city, encompassing up to 8 million people under their supposedly utopian government. But as you know, the story was far from any utopia. Instead of being paradise on earth, it was more like hell on earth. All sorts of atrocities were committed by ISIS. Over 830,000 civilians were, were displaced as they fled cities and villages. Uh, as they went, ISIS went from village to village, subjecting their occupants to not only a harsh form of Islamic law, but also torture, crucifixion, rape, slavery, using innocents as human shields and child warriors. Whole ethnic groups were purged from the area, including Christians, Shias, Yazidis, and Kurds. Perhaps thousands of girls were used as sex slaves, including uh, the American Kayla Mueller. You may know her story, a humanitarian worker in, in uh, Syria who was cap captured and then became the, the uh, unwilling wife of the ISIS leader himself, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. 
They burned people alive. They slaughtered old men and women. They destroyed priceless ancient landmarks. They used chemical weapons. They sponsored horrendous terrorist acts in Tunisia, Egypt, Paris, Turkey, and elsewhere. Their brutality and evil are really unspeakable. Thankfully, after persistent national and international counterattacks, they've been finally crushed. In November of last year, they were pushed out of Mosul and basically every city and village, and now they've been forced to go underground. And justice will be fully served when they finally capture Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi uh, and bring him to trial and try all the remaining leaders for their t- horrific war crimes. Why do I share this story? Because it's, it's a real story. But it also speaks to our longing for evil to be eradicated. Our longing for justice to be done. Because as we stand by and watch these things and perhaps know people that have been affected, We cannot help but feel how horrible it is, how evil it is, and and how right it is for this group to be stopped and brought to justice. Any love for goodness, any love for the things that are right and true and admirable, any love for these things necessarily means hatred of those things that would destroy the good. Hatred of evil. Hatred or wrath towards evil is itself goodness. And we feel that, rightly so, when we look at things like the behavior of ISIS. And when that response to evil is measured and reasonable and accomplishes justice, it's not only a good thing, it's a very good thing. Today we're going to look in Revelation chapters 15 and 16. We're going to witness the holy wrath of God, the justice of God on display against His enemies. And we're going to hear the call of these chapters. We're going to hear the call of Scripture to celebrate justice as good and true and right. You see, God's glory is not only shown in His amazing love, His faithful, consistent generosity, even to His enemies, but not only shown in those things, but also necessarily so from His goodness in His holy wrath. And heaven invites us to fear Him and worship Him because of this holy wrath, this holy justice. This truth is so important. So important to understand God and goodness itself. And it is, I would say, very much neglected in our culture. If we really want to know God in all of His goodness and glory, we must know Him in His holy wrath, in His justice. And the call here is to to know Him and to worship Him. And I pray that that would be the result of our time as we look at the Word. So let's pray. As you can imagine, it's a challenging topic to address. So let's ask God for His grace for for me and for us to hear. Lord, we thank You that You're here with us. And Lord, uh, as I approach this challenging topic and these challenging chapters, Lord, I do it in confidence that it's Your Word and that You love us and love Your people and and want to touch each and every one here. So we ask You for help. Help me, Lord, to teach Your Word, to proclaim Your truth. Help us to hear from You, Lord, that it would... It would not be about someone's opinion, my opinion, others' opinions, but what You say. Lord, culturally, we are in a culture that is saturated with things that oppose this idea and and are revulsed by it, Lord. So help us to sift and sort through those things to listen to Your Word. And help us to be changed by Your Word, we pray. And help us to know You better and love You more and love others more because of it as well. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.
Read with me, starting in chapter 15, verse 1. We're going to go through two whole chapters. Uh, it's a larger section today, but they fit together. So I'll start 15, verse 1. It says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are Your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty! Just and true are Your ways, O King of the nations! Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship You, for Your righteous acts have been revealed." After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bull on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bull on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. 
And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. God's Word, Revelation 15 and 16. I want to take time to look at these two chapters and learn from them. There are three aspects of God's wrath uh, that we see here that I want to touch on. Uh, usually we'll go through just kind of verse uh, in line with the verses, but this will be more thematic. First, I want to look at how we see wrath prepared in these two chapters. And then how we see wrath performed. And then how we see wrath, holy wrath, praised. Um, and we learn from here that God is good. And because of His goodness, He is a God of wrath towards evil. So let's begin. Let's dig in. In the beginning, uh, chapter 15, verse 1, John starts by saying, I, Then I saw another sign in heaven. And we've been going through this book and we've realized that there are these cycles of vision of things that, God, that John sees. Uh, there are seven cycles of visions and they have uh, sometimes, most of the time, seven components. And they overlap. They're similar and they overlap, so we've been making our way through. We've already gone through four vision cycles, the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven historic symbols, and now the seven bowls in this section. So, so it starts with John seeing in heaven a great sign, these seven angels with seven plagues. These angels come with these plagues that are going to be poured out, and with them the wrath of God is finished. So this cycle is a little different. It's similar to the other ones. And remember, as we've looked at Revelation, we understand these things as things that have happened, things that have been happening, and things that will happen. So the time period is certainly uh, some of there are aspects that happened with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. There are aspects that have been true throughout the whole age of the church, and there are aspects that are true for the end. And this one uh, in particular points to the end because with these, the wrath of God is finished. And it speaks later of the great day of the Lord. Uh, so it's, this is the final wrath. This is the final pouring out of God's uh, wrath on His enemies, in particular those that have taken the mark of the beast, those that have, have uh, rebelled against God and identified with false religions and, and false kingdoms and have opposed and persecuted and even put to death God's people. And so there's wrath being poured out on them, but, but it's also a picture of wrath being poured out on all rebellious mankind. And so John sees these angels and, and they are uh, mighty angels that come from the throne room. And there's a picture here in this of, of the throne, throne room of God being active in these angels going out and pouring out wrath. They, uh, we see that they're in the throne room. They're before the throne. There's a sea of glass mingled with fire. That sea of glass uh, is before the throne. We see that elsewhere in Scripture as, as heaven and God's throne is pictured. Actually, as early as Exodus 24, the same sort of thing. So before the throne, there's this glass. It's part of the glory of God. But here, it's glass mingled with fire. The picturing uh, judgment coming from God's throne. These bowls of wrath are sent out from the throne. They're commissioned from the throne. And then as they do their work, they're, they're praised from the throne of God. And the first point is that this is wrath prepared by God Himself. That the wrath, the holy wrath, is from God. It's part of God's plan to pour out holy wrath. To arrange this. To send His angels. To give them the bowls. To, to have them pour it out. 
again and again through these two chapters, we see that this is the wrath of God. Now, that's an important point to get in Scripture. It's an important point to get for reality that God is a God of wrath. Now, we don't like to think of Him as a God of wrath, do we? Um, we love to talk about Him being a God of mercy and love and grace and kindness and patience and all these things. We love those things. But a God of wrath? That, that's a taboo topic, isn't it? Um, you know, if, if you're given advice, if you really want to grow your church, you want to attract people to come to church, you don't preach messages on the wrath of God in our culture, right? You talk about the goodness of God, the love of God, the patience of God. And all those things are true, and, and actually, infinitely so. God's love is just amazing. It's unbounded. His kindness and patience is great. It, but it goes along and parallel and really from the same source uh, of who He is, that He's a God of wrath. It isn't an arbitrary wrath. It isn't capricious. God just doesn't fly off the handle. It's a measured, just, perfect wrath. It's, it's a response to injustice and evil. It's setting right. It's bringing justice. That is what the wrath of God is. It's a holy wrath. But Americans and Western Christians don't like to hear about it. You know that uh, for most cultures and most, uh, most of history, they've not struggled with the wrath of God. They've struggled with the love of God. Because when they look at themselves and their smallness and weakness and sinfulness and the holiness of God, and they think, well, of course He's a God of wrath because I know myself and I know who He is. Their struggle is, how could He love me? But that's not our struggle, is it? Our struggle is the other way around. We live in a culture that, product of the Enlightenment, product of the influence of Christianity and so forth, that we have such a high view of ourselves that we think, of course He loves me. I mean... Who wouldn't? <laughs> and we're not really honest with ourselves, right? I mean, we just think, of course He loves me. Of course God loves me. And so when we hear about His wrath, it's really it's, it's offensive. Why would He love me? Why wouldn't He love these other people? And we come up with all these arguments. Now, Scripture has answers for that. And, and as your friends and neighbors, maybe some of you here are bringing those arguments, there are answers. We want to be patient. We want to help people understand and walk them through truth. But it is our disposition to, to assume that He loves us and to be offended at the idea that He would be wrathful towards us. That He would be wrathful towards anybody. And I don't particularly enjoy preaching a message on God's wrath. I've asked people to pray for me because I know it's a challenging topic. But it's in Scripture. It's not just that it's in Scripture. It's not just that some, it's something we ought to address at least once every few years or something like that. It's fundamental to who God is. And I would say to you that if you don't understand the wrath of God, you don't understand God. And if you don't get the wrath of God, you don't understand what goodness is and what God's goodness is. It is at the core of who He is. It flows together with all His other qualities of goodness. Standards of right and wrong, good and evil, truth, beauty, virtue, meaning, all these things are expressions of His goodness alongside His perfect justice, His holy wrath. And I think if we step back and think about it a little bit, look at scriptural truths, I think we can understand, at least begin to understand why this is valid. Imagine this. Imagine your grandmother has a beautiful strawberry patch that she's tended for years. Fruitful, it's her joy. 
to tend this, to weed it, to care for it. And one year, just in her kindness, she decides, you know what? I've really enjoyed having this strawberry patch and enjoying the, these strawberries, but I'm going to open it up to the neighborhood kids just so they can enjoy it with me. I'm going to invite them in. They can come in and pick strawberries, eat the strawberries, and, and I'll hang out with them. It's going to be great. So she does that. And it's successful for a little bit, but then some bullies in the neighborhood uh, find out about it, and they see an opportunity. And so they actually go around and they tell all the kids that, that your grandmother has, they lie to them, your grandmother has put them in charge of the strawberry patch, and everybody has to pay a dollar to use the strawberry patch. So they're, they're doing neighborhood bully extortion. Um, well, your grandmother finds out about it, and she confronts the bullies. How dare you do that? This is meant to be free for all the kids in the neighborhood. You stop that. Don't do it anymore. This, uh, you know, and she opposes them. And, 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 uh, and in retaliation, they come at night to the strawberry patch and they stamp and crush all the strawberry vines. They vandalize the whole thing. And when your grandmother comes out to see what's going on, they rough your grandmother up. So just imagine that goes on. And that you find this out from your grandmother on the phone as she's telling the story. And you know your grandmother. And she's hysterical on the phone. You're one of the first persons she calls in the morning. She doesn't even know what she should do. She's, she's frantic in what went on. She's, she's, it's your grandmother. How would you feel at that moment? What would be running through your mind? Would you be a little angry? If you're like me, you would be very angry. <laughs> do you think it would be justified to be angry? What if somebody said, your grandmother should just forgive them. You know, boys will be boys. Just forgive them and let it go. What would be your response to that? Might you think, wait a second. What about my grandmother? And what they did to terrorize my grandmother? And how that's going to affect her the rest of her life? What about all those kids they extorted and how that's going to change their lives? Maybe who knows what goes on in their lives being bullied like that. What about the strawberry vines that are squished and smashed? Who's going to pay for that? Are you saying my grandmother has to absorb all that? Is that what you're saying? Is that justice? How do you deal with that? How do you feel in relationship to that? Well, it's a, it's a made-up story. I mean, something like that can and those sorts of things do happen, actually. But it's a picture. It's meant to be a, a, a metaphor of God, because God's like the grandmother in the story, but God is way better than your grandmother. He's more generous. He's kind. He's innocent. He's glorious. He's, he's perfect. And He didn't just make a strawberry patch. He made everything. He made all the strawberries that exist. He made all the strawberry patches that exist. He made all the kids in the neighborhood. He made the neighborhood itself. He made everybody. And He's good and holy and patient and kind, and generous, and faithful, and unchanging. And humanity in its rebellion against Him is the bullies. And our crimes are far greater. Yes, there are varied crimes. We don't all do things like ISIS does. But we've all committed crimes against God and His goodness. And they're greater than the story with Grandmother's Strawberry Patch. And in Revelation, we have the enemies of God who have allied themselves with the devil to oppose God and persecute His people and even murder them. 
and to build their own kingdom in God's backyard. And so, God must respond in His goodness to this evil. He must respond. He must do something. He must bring punishment and payback that's right and just. Just as in the case of your grandmother. There must be some form of justice done in that. Even if she forgives him personally, there's a price to be paid for the damage. And understanding this aspect of goodness itself and God is so fundamental to knowing God and making sense of life. And if we neglect God's holy wrath, His holy justice, in light of His love, we miss out on who He is. We miss out on how things work. And, and I believe we will not really understand the greatness of His salvation of sinners like us. We won't understand the hope of justice. We will be frustrated when we face injustice. And injustice is done to us or those we love. And you will turn inward. And you won't have answers. We need to understand this to understand God, to understand His ways, to understand reality. He's a God of wrath and He's prepared wrath to be poured out on all evil. So don't claim to be a follower of Christ and one who submitted to the Word if you neglect and ignore the holy wrath of God. And conversely, I invite you if you're wondering about who God is, to consider who He is in His holy wrath. To know God as good and therefore a God of wrath. Who opposes all evil and will finally and fully deal with all evil in His time and His way. And that is a good thing. He's good enough to hate and obliterate all evil. So we see in the chapters here, He's prepared wrath. It comes from the throne. It's who He is. And He performs it. It's poured out. And it's a terrible picture of His wrath being poured out. The focus here is on the enemies of God in particular. Those who have opposed Him. Taking the mark of the beast. Um, And we know in looking at that, uh, that the mark represents a name. The name uh, likely in the application towards the early church would probably be Nero. So those who have come under the Roman Empire and under their false religion and therefore uh, have allied themselves in that way and now are opposing God's people. Remember the seven churches this is written to are living as believers in this context where if, if you didn't submit to the emperor and emperor worship and so forth, or if you didn't submit to uh, the Jewish establishment, even though if you were a Jewish believer, uh, you were no longer allowed in the synagogue. If so if you didn't do that, you were persecuted. You'd lose your job. You'd lose your finances. You may, may lose your life. That's the context here. So, the, so part of what's going on here is the, the promise that God will pour out wrath on these enemies. And the application is not only to those uh, in that time, but really all of His enemies. All those who would oppose God. So these plagues, uh, these plagues get poured out. There are seven of them. And if you look at them, they, they actually look a lot like the plagues in uh, in Exodus, where God delivers His people from the Egyptians. They're very similar. There's boils. There's blood for water. There's darkness. There's water being dried up for an army to cross. There's a song of celebration called the Song of Moses. And if you look, that's in Exodus where that is sung after they're delivered from Egypt. And so it's parallel, and that's on purpose to, to, to be parallel to what He did with the Egyptians. Because the Egyptians are an earlier example of people opposed to God and persecuting God's people. They enslaved and oppressed God's people for hundreds of years. And they refused to repent. They refused to let them go. They refused to acknowledge in the face of mighty miracles and great signs. They refused to repent and allow the people to go. And so God brought wrath on them. He brought these plagues on them. And He drove them to the place where they finally let 
His people go. And they delivered, uh, He delivered His people that way. And so His judgment of evil and the judgment of the Egyptians was in parallel with His salvation of His people. And that's what's here in these chapters as well. They go in parallel. He brings judgment on His enemies. He brings wrath on His enemies. He brings salvation on His people. What's the difference, by the way, between His enemies and His people? Is it that His people are especially good and better than His enemies in every way? Well, they should look like Him if they're truly His people, but that's actually not the answer. The simple difference between His enemies and His people is that His people are His former enemies who realized they were in trouble and ran to Him in faith for mercy and rescue. And in that running, they say, I, I want to give up that lifestyle and I want to live under you. But it's, it's a difference in faith, orientation. That's the, that's the only difference here. That's important to understand. But God is a God who brings justice to His enemies, justice to those who are rebels and who live in that rebellion, and mercy and grace to those who run to His mercy and grace and faith. And so He did that he, uh, in the time of the Israelites being delivered from Egypt. And He's promising to do that in the end as well. To deliver His people. And to bring punishment on those who are His enemies. So there is plague after plague sent and the people refuse to repent. Again, we saw that earlier. They refuse to repent. So in light of these, these cataclysmic worldwide plagues that are coming, instead of repenting, they are hardening their hearts. And they're cursing God. And they're hating God. It makes me think of the two thieves on the cross. You know the story. Jesus is on the cross being crucified. And there are two thieves on the cross. One thief is mocking Jesus. Both these thieves deserve to be on the cross. They're, Jesus didn't. Jesus was innocent. He bore our sins on the cross, but He Himself had committed no sin. But these two thieves deserved it. And one's response is to be hard-hearted and to mock Jesus. But the other one, says, basically, I deserve to be here. Jesus, have mercy on me. He repents. He realizes he deserves what he gets, but he, he looks to Jesus. That day, one thief ends up in eternal separation from God. Eternal punishment. One thief who simply turns to Christ is with Jesus in paradise that very day. And in this storyline, it is tragic to see that there's no repentance. In light of wrath being poured out, in light of just punishment coming, they are not saying, you know what, I deserve this. Rescue me. Have mercy on me, O God. They're instead mocking God and opposing God and hating God. And that's what goes on. These are truly the enemies of God in that sense. The appeal here in Scripture though is, is for us to realize if I'm living in that place of rebellion against God, I better repent and I should stop failing to see the messages that are coming my way. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. The fact that you're alive, the fact that you have food and shelter and the good things that you're experiencing are because God wants you to run to Him and not to stand on your own two feet and to not to shake your fist and blame God, but instead realize, you know what? In your sin, in my sin, we deserve even worse than what we get. Have mercy on me, Jesus. Rescue me. That's the message that's here in these chapters. That's part of why this is here. This description is here. is to urge us not to be like them. Repent! And run to God for mercy. These plagues get poured out and uh, the sixth bowl gets poured out 
And that bowl leads to the drying up of the Euphrates. This is a major river there, and in and it, uh, historic uh, significance that in order for armies to come and conquer, to move into Israel or even to the Roman Empire, they had to cross this river. And so it's, the river being dried up is preparing to, for a battle, uh, and it's a plague that comes with that battle. But this battle is actually kings from the east. Um, I think this is symbolic. Uh, it may be literal in the end. I mean, there will be literal aspects of this. Uh, for sure. Uh, don't understand all the details, but the idea is of mighty armies coming in to oppose God's people to do battle. And there are these frogs, it's evil frogs, these demonic spirits that go out and they deceive people. What is the deception? The deception is that somehow we can actually band together and fight and win over Jesus. That's the deception. So their rebellion gets worse and worse. It's just totally fantastical and ridiculous that somehow we can come together and... and Fight Jesus and win? Now, how do I know it's Jesus? Well, because there's this parenthetical statement here. It speaks of these kings, people being assembled for battle. And then verse 15 says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Who's coming? Jesus. He's coming. He's returning. That's the context here. So this battle is against Jesus as Jesus returns. He's coming like a thief. What does that mean? Well, He comes like a thief in the night, unexpected. Thieves come in the middle of the night when you don't expect them, right? And that's how you, if you're going to be a successful thief, you don't tell people, hey, I'll be there at 2 a.m. Um, so just so you know, I'll be robbing your house at 2 a.m. No, you come unexpectedly. That's the picture here. Uh, that's unexpected. Jesus is unexpected in his return. Um, and blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments with him, ready for the, to encounter the thief, rather than asleep in bed in your pajamas. You want to be ready. And so Jesus is saying, I'm coming back. And, and that's the context here that they are gathering for battle against Jesus. Now, we don't get any more details here later on, chapters 19 and I believe 20 as well. We're going to learn about those details of that last battle. But it's ridiculous that they're thinking somehow that they can oppose Jesus. And there's a side message in this too to us. Jesus is saying to us, guys, be ready. Be ready for when I come back. Hear that in, in all of Revelation. There's a warning in Revelation to us to be ready. Remember the context. The, the seven churches. A lot of what's going on in those seven churches, they're facing a lot of persecution. They're unpopular in the culture. The message that they bring is not a treasured mes message. It causes you to be ostracized in that culture. So people are deciding, you know what, it's just too, too costly, so let's compromise. So there are people who are compromising and, and living, uh, walking away from the Lord. There are whole churches that are compromising and allowing worldly values to come in and define the church to make that church more acceptable to the culture. That's the context. And Jesus is saying here and through Revelation, guys, I'm going to show up at any moment and you need to be ready. And if you are compromising, you're not ready. If you have walked away from the Lord, if you are compromising as a church, your fidelity as a disciple is in question. You may not actually not belong to Jesus if that's your behavior, and therefore you won't be ready. So don't play games. Don't think that it's worth it to compromise with the culture. It's never worth it. That's, that's the message here in this. Jesus is coming back. Even though they're preparing for battle, we're going to see later this ridiculous audacity that they think they could fight against Jesus. He's going to come back, and he's just to give you a sneak peek, Jesus wins. He wins. But there's a warning here for us to be ready. 
to recognize it's just never worth it to walk away. Never worth it to, to think that it's uh, a better thing to compromise. And guys, we face pressure, don't we, to compromise. It's not easy to be a Christian in any culture, by the way. Even at the height of, of Christendom in the West, it was still hard to be a, a thorough Christian because there, there was a kind of civic version of Christianity that was just kind of watered down just a little bit. It's never been easy. There's always pressure. There's always pressure. The, the, the message of the cross that, that you are so sinful that God Himself, God the Son, had to die for you, that's offensive. Now the other side of it is you are so loved that He did it for you. Our culture likes the second part, not the first part. And so it's never easy. There's always pressure. There's always pressure to walk away. And this is for all of us, and I, and I would especially like to speak to our younger people. Because a lot of you are fairly new in the faith. You're young. And you're beginning to be in the world. And you're facing these pressures. And the pressures have always been there. I think they're probably more than they've been in, in a long time. So your culture, the millennial culture, is a harder culture to follow the Lord in. But also I know, having walked with the Lord and having been a young person not that long ago, that there are a lot of people, a lot of my friends, who walked away. And many of them didn't come back. They've walked away and they've stayed away. And, and I just uh, want you to hear the warning of Scripture. It's never worth it. I remember a, a young woman I had the privilege of leading to the Lord so excited about Jesus. So excited about having forgiveness in Christ. Her new life. And she had struggled with many things. And she just, it, it really, there was a tremendous, wonderful change that went on in her life. And then she went and told her family. This is over a break. She went and told her family. And she came back. She disappeared. I finally tracked her down. I said, what went on? And she said, I'm done with Jesus. My family said, you choose either us or Jesus. And the pressure of her family was enough that she decided to, to reject Christ. I have other stories I could tell of those who have walked away thinking that it's worth it. It's never worth it. There's no other place to find healing and wholeness and truth and goodness, true beauty, true glorious things apart from Christ. All you have is pretense. Fleeting pretense. And as great as the pressure might get, as good as it might look at times, I mean, who doesn't want to get along with everybody? Who doesn't want to avoid offending people? We should, none of us should enjoy those things. It may seem like a good idea to walk away so you can get along with your friends or you can have a better career. I mean, it affects your job. We're not like the early church, but it's going to affect your job. I, I missed promotions because of my faith. Because I wouldn't lie for my boss going to affect your job. There'll be pressure on you, but it's never worth it. Never worth it to give in. Never worth it to run from Christ. In Him alone is salvation. In Him alone is faith. And there's an eternal kingdom where you will be glad for every decision you made to, to remain and depend on Christ in the face of pressure. That's the message of Revelation. That's the message we see in all these things in the holy wrath of God. Wrath is prepared 
Finally, wrath is praised. We see throughout this section of Scripture where where, uh, God is praised for His holy wrath. Um, They say early, great and amazing are your deeds. Right early on in the chapter, in chapter 15. Great and amazing are your deeds. Why did I close my Bible? Um, He's praised for His deeds. What deeds are they talking about? What's the context? It's God vanquishing enemies, bringing judgment and delivering His people. Great and amazing are your deeds. Lord, you're following through. You are changing the world. You're bringing a justice that's eradicating evil, bringing true punishment and justice and finality to your wrath. You're great and amazing are your deeds. Just and true are your ways, O God. Your ways are just and true. Nobody in the end is going to say, oh man, that was just a little bit over the top, God. No one. His justice will be perfect. His justice is never excessive. It's not Dante's Inferno. It's always measured and appropriate and right and just. Now, how do I know that? Because He's praised for it. Everybody's going to see what He's done and the justice that He has meted out. And everyone's going to say, just and true your ways. His saints are going to celebrate that. And the result here should be to fear and glorify His name. Isn't that interesting? To fear and glorify. It's not the typical thing we think of glorifying Him for, right? We glorify Him for His mercy and grace and His creation. But here, He's being glorified for His justice, His holy wrath being poured out. Because it's perfect. It's right. It's true. It's good. It's interesting in chapter 15, as as the angels are sent out with these bowls of wrath, the throne room was full of smoke. And we see in Scripture that happens when the glory of God is so heavy. It is manifested with smoke. It's from the glory and power of God. But what's the context? It's His holy wrath that's being demonstrated. His glory is demonstrated in His holy wrath. His justice. His perfect justice. Answering His enemies with perfect justice. Whether those enemies are the terrible ones who persecute God's people or the ones who have simply rebelled against Him by following man-made religions to justify themselves before Him. Whatever it might be in the whole spectrum, it's just and it's good. It's perfect in every way. And it's celebrated here in Scripture. Boy, that adjusts our perspective, doesn't it? Now, you might be listening and thinking, it does seem a little bit over the top. And what I would say to you is that you, like me, don't really understand justice. Haven't stepped back from your life enough. And I do this all the time, by the way. So you're not alone. None of us are alone in this. At the end, you know what all God simply needs to do to convince us that if we have relied on ourselves and are facing His justice instead of running to Him for refuge, and I'll talk about that shortly, that it's deserved. You know what all He needs to do? Just play back an, an audio tape. They don't have tapes. An audio recording of all the things you've said in your life. All the things that you have said about what's right and good. And then just show you little snippets of how you violated your own standards again and again and again and again. Right? Driving. Just a little trivial example, but driving. Who here has said at times, you know, I've said things like, boy, they should have a driving test every year for some of these people. And then I get a ticket for making an illegal U-turn which I didn't know about, but anyhow, I'm still guilty. 
Do you know that a study revealed that 90% of drivers think that they are above average? It also, another similar study found that 85% of people think they are better than others at getting along with people. Numbers, right? 85, you can't have it that work that way. 25% of the people were, uh, said that they were in the top 1% in terms of their relational skills. 70% said they are better leaders than average. When we do spiritual surveys um, as a church, and we, we take, where did I put it? We take people through, <clears throat> I don't know where I put it. Oh, oh, great, thank you. We take people through this wonderful little booklet, How Good Are You? And, uh, and it talks about this very question, because we all think we're great. We all think God must love me because I'm pretty good. And so we take it through, and then we ask them to rate themselves on how good they are on a scale of 1 to 10. Pretty much everybody gets, Get, race themselves a what? Take a guess. Seven. Isn't that interesting? A seven. A seven's a nice, safe number. You're not bragging too much, right? But you really probably think you're more like a nine or a ten if, you're, if, you, know, if, you, if you were to be honest. But a seven. You know, I'm not that bad. I'm not perfect, but I'm a seven. And what we do in this, with this little booklet, by the way, grab one of these if we have them on the table or the bookshelf. Uh, we take them through the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> and we show them what the commandments are about and how they require really what's good and what's right. And usually at the end of that, they realize, oh, I'm no seven. If I'm going to rate myself by God's standard of perfect love, perfect goodness, perfect justice, I'm more like a zero. And then that allows us to, to talk about the hope we have in Christ, the good news. That's the reality, guys. If we look at our lives honestly, we deserve God's holy justice ourselves. We are not in a place where we can be God's judge. We are in the place where we are rightfully judged by God. And His justice is perfect. It's good. It's right. It's true. And the good news is in this perfect but stark backdrop of God's holy justice, there shines a hope that when we understand the wrath of God, when we understand His holy justice, and we understand ourselves honestly in our failures and our shortcomings and how we've sinned against God and sinned against others, that that sinfulness is not just occasional thing, but something that even defines us in terms of our nature. When we get those things, it creates a backdrop that now the good news of Christ shines all the brighter. Because the good news of Christ is there's one man who has never fallen short of the standard to truly love God and truly love others. Who's never fallen short of the standard of justice and perfection. Jesus Christ, God the Son, the God-man, never fell short. And in His great love for us, God's great love for us, the triune God in His great love for us, He sent His Son to go to the cross. And on that cross, bear the justice, the wrath that I deserved and that you deserve and any and all who would come to Him, all of us, to bear that holy wrath multiplied by billions. To bear it and pay for it finally and fully as only God in the flesh could do. He died that death in our place. He bore the holy wrath of God and paid it in full and said it is finished that we could run to Him 
for forgiveness. We could run to Him for justice being done on Him for our sake. So that we could have the penalty of our sins paid for finally and fully in Christ. And be sheltered in Jesus. And through Jesus, now the love of God can be fully expressed to us. And through Christ, because of Christ dying and and suffering and paying for our sins, experiencing holy wrath, drinking it to the bottom of the cup for us, now in God's good plan and His infinite love, He can welcome us as sons and daughters fully into the family, beloved, and now work all things for our good. It changes everything. But you don't get the good news being good news unless you understand the holy, just wrath of God. That's the good news. His justice has been done and will be done. His justice has been done in Christ. His justice will be done at the end of all things. And He will be praised for it. We will celebrate it forever and ever. We will rejoice in His perfect justice to know that He's dealt with evil. He's brought punishment either in Christ or on those who have refused Christ. And it will be good and it will be right. And we will fear Him and glorify Him if the band could come up as we close. Transition. Understanding God's holy wrath changes everything. We know His goodness by knowing His holy wrath and His commitment to holy justice. It changes everything. It changes how we think about Jesus and salvation. It changes how we think about the Christian life. How we think about the temptations of this world. Oh, why mess with evil temptations when so much is at stake? How we think about evil. How we think about justice being done and injustice. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When injustice is done to us, we are to look to the God of justice who will bring justice. There is satisfaction that we experience by trusting God to bring justice. Understanding these things changes everything and compels us to fear Him, to run to Him, to thank Him, to worship Him, to be in awe and respect before Him, to glorify Him. So let's learn from Revelation 15 and 16. Let us learn of God's goodness and that He's worthy of praise for His holy wrath. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for these chapters in Your Word and we ask You, Lord, to teach us about Yourself. Teach us about truth. Lord, we ask You to change us. That we would live in light of these truths. We would fear You and be grateful to You and worship You. And we would be eager witnesses to others that they might run to You for rescue in this day of salvation rather than facing Your wrath apart from Christ. Motivate us. Change us. Be glorified through our lives. As a result, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.